Welcome back to the FKT Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today we're chatting with Sunny Storer, who set an unsupported FKT on the Grand Canyon rim to rim to rim alternate route in just over 20 hours. She followed that up with a bold late season supported attempt on the 800 mile Arizona trail. Join us to hear what it's like to swim the Colorado River solo twice in one day, why the couch to FKT plan isn't a recipe for success, and the psychology of quitting an FKT attempt. Thank you, Sunny, so much for uh, coming on the show today. I'm really excited to chat with you about your recent Arizona adventures. Thank you, Heather, for having me. I'm, uh, I'm excited for the conversation. Recently, you did the rim to rim to rim across the Grand Canyon. Uh, but you did an alternate route. So I think most of our listeners are probably pretty familiar with Rim to Rim to Rim. It's kind of a classic in running and in FKTs. I'd like to know if you can share with us a little bit about how the alternate route is different and why maybe you chose to do the alternate route. Well, the alt on the Rim to Rim to Rim is very similar to the classic route in some ways. um, And that is specifically in terms of the distance and the elevation profile. However, it is on different trails that are much, much more remote, much more rugged. And the kicker is that the Rim to Rim to Rim Alt does not have a bridge at the bottom that connects the northern and southern parts of the trail. So you have to swim across the river in both directions. And I've actually never been over to, it's the North Bass Trail, I think is what you take on the North Mm -hmm. Rim, right? In the South Bass. I think I've been on parts of the South Bass, but I've never been on the North Bass Trail. I have done the standard corridor route, but I'd love to hear maybe just a little bit about what the North Bass is like, like for those who have maybe been on like the North Kaibab Trail, like how is the North Bass different? North Bass is pretty wild. You know, first off to just get to the trailhead, you have a good uh, hour and a half, two hours or so of off pavement driving to get out there and you can only access it in certain conditions. You know, if it's wet or snowy or whatnot, it's going to be pretty rough trying to even get to the trailhead. Mm. But the trail itself is, uh, it's about 14 miles down to the river, so not that different from North Kaibab to the river, but it is rugged and it's bushwhacky and it's scrambly and it goes through, you know, side canyons and drainages and Mm. there's a lot of route finding involved. So in general, North Bass is very, very, very slow. And uh, it's just a much wilder experience. You know, around the corridor trails, you have the rest houses and the water spigots and Phantom Ranch and lots of people who are either, you know, day hiking or through hiking or doing Grand Canyon backpacks or runs on North Bass. If you see one or two other people in a whole day, like that's a lot. And Mm -hmm. as I said, it's very, very slow. And did you see anyone when you were in there? I did see one person this time. I saw a sole backpacker um, sometime towards the morning hours. Um, above Shinomo Creek, which is, you know, kind of down towards the bottom of it already. And uh, that person was, you know, kind of slowly and painstakingly crossing the creek. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just going past and kind of barreling through. And I think caught him a little bit by surprise, but I just waved and moved on. And that's the only person that I saw for the entire route. Wow. Is the North Bass marked at all? Like, are there cairns or is it true, like you have to route find the entire way? There are cairns and there are some trail sections that are pretty good. So, you know, starting from Swamp Point, which is the trailhead, you have decent trail going down the first probably two or three miles or so. And then you're in the creek bed and it gets a little worse. And then there is a bypass on the Tonto Plateau, actually, because so there's two ways to take North Bass down to the river. You can either stay in the proper 
side canyon drainage and there's a couple of down climbs and you know semi-technical canyoneering or you can exit out of the canyon and do a bypass on the tonto to go past most of the more technical sections and you know i took the bypass which is what most fkt hopefuls have done in the past because it's just a lot faster and a lot easier so i still want to get back in there at some point and actually go and do the more technical route staying in the drainage proper yeah yeah the tonto is for our listeners who don't know the tonto is a very flat feature kind of halfway between the rim and the river and it's a it's a nice reprieve from the, the steepness of everywhere else on the in the Grand Canyon. So you uh, you started at the North Rim. So you went down the North Bass Trail first, and then you get to the Colorado River. Can you describe swimming the Colorado River? Like, what did you just hop right in? Did you have a wetsuit? Did you have you know water wings? Like, <laughs> what did you take? Because the Colorado River is a, a huge river, and it's murky and it's cold. <laughs> like. What was this like? You know, swimming the Colorado is definitely the the element that gives the rim to rim all the real pucker factor. I mean, the North Bass Trail and how remote it is and North and South Bass and the ruggedness, you know, that in and of itself makes it a lot more challenging than the classic route. But the river swim is a, depending how you look at it, either a very, very big deal or not that big a deal after all. So what I mean by that is before I first attempted this route, because this is the second time I've now done it, I actually was part of the team that put the first women's time on it uh, about two years ago, two or three years ago, I think. And, um, you know, we were trying to figure out how to cross the river safely and conservatively. Um, and we'd managed to do that. And, you know, we had brought wetsuits at the time. And one of the three of us actually had a pack raft and helped, you know, kind of with safety spotting and with shuttling mm-hmm. the gear as well. This mm-hmm. time when I went back by myself, I wanted to prove to myself that I had what it takes to cross the river safely and smartly without having all of those backup elements in place. But, you know, essentially, when you think about crossing the Colorado, there's a couple of reasons why this is intimidating, to me anyway, and why it's challenging. One of them is that it is the Colorado River. You know, it's a big river. But where you're crossing, you probably only have about 200 to 300 yards across or so. So it's not a huge swim, you know, but it, it is a river swim. The current is strong and you are crossing right in between two rapids. So mm-hmm. you have, you know, one rapid just upstream of where you're crossing. And then you have more rapids downstream of the area where you're crossing in flat water, hopefully. And the challenge, of course, is if you somehow mess up your river crossing and you miss the exit or you know you get swept by the current you will end up swimming rapids um, which mm. to me anyway is pretty intimidating and not only will you end up swimming rapids you will get carried downstream by the Colorado River into an entirely different section of the Grand Canyon when there is no developed trails back up to the rim right so mm. how are you going to get back to where you started and how and when and where are you going to be able to even just get back to shore and get out of the river because it's not beautiful beaches and you know easy shore all throughout the Grand Canyon. A lot of those stretches are very rocky. It's sheer walls. You can't just go and you know land and like get out, but you have to be really strategic about where you kind of get into the river and where you get back out of it. So those things are intimidating. The other thing that's really intimidating is that the Colorado River is very, very, very cold. So, mm-hmm. you know, in general, um, because the river is fed by the dam, uh, that's Glen Canyon Dam at the beginning of the Grand Canyon, 
the river water is dam release that's coming out from the very bottom of Lake Powell. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, that water is just sitting there in Lake Powell, it cools down radically. And I think in, you know, the last couple of years, the dam release temperatures have typically been somewhere around 47 to 48 degrees or something like that. That's really cold, cold. right? (laughs) And of course, the water warms up as it travels in the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, because, you know, now all of a sudden you don't have that thermal effect from the lake water anymore. You know, you just have the river that's getting warmed by tributaries and by radiation and all of those things. But still, you know, it's still pretty cold. Um, Mm -hmm. I did have something working in my favor here, which is that because Lake Powell has been so low in the last year, year and a half um, because of the drought, the dam release water temperatures actually have been a good, I think, six or seven degrees warmer than they had been historically. So Mm -hmm. I was lucky in that I didn't have to deal with the coldest possible temperatures, but it was still pretty cold. Yeah. Did you carry any, I have so many questions about this. Did you carry any special gear on this attempt? Obviously, you said you had a wetsuit the first time. I did carry special gear, and I changed the strategy completely from that first team attempt um, a couple of years back. So what I did this time was no wetsuit, but I did carry a pair of kick fins that Mm -hmm. would allow me to, you know, just be a lot more powerful and fast going across the river. Mm -hmm. And I was really happy with that strategy because it took some of the physical effort out of trying to, you know, swim across the river and um, fight the current. Right. Do you have a a background as a swimmer? Like, are you, because I don't swim. So like, (laughs) this just sounds so terrifying to me. (laughs) I have somewhat of a background as a swimmer. I mean, not really, but I Mm -hmm. swam a little bit in high school in Germany, which, you know, swimming in school in Germany is not at all the same as being on a team in the US. You know, it meant that like once a week I'd go and, you know, get in the pool for an hour and then we'd go to meets occasionally, right? So so I know mm-hmm. how to swim and I have decent form and I feel relatively comfortable in the water. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm certainly not a competitive swimmer or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, even if you are very, you know, competent in a swimming pool, you know, swimming a wild river is like a completely different, you know, scenario. And you mentioned, you know, having to, to hit your exit point. So when you get down to the river, you know, are you angling like upstream or something? So the current carries you downstream. Like, are you, you know, do you have a strategy for that? Are you trying to correct that in, in the river? You know, kind of, how does that, how does that play out? I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely. So the very first thing that I did, and this was part of the strategy as well, that my friends and I had come up with when we first tried it a couple of years ago you know, when I swim across the first time, actually, it doesn't really matter which time I swim across, but, you know, as I'm swimming across, I am starting right downstream from the rapids, right? So that I have as much flat water and as much space for the current to carry me downstream as humanly possible before I hit the next rapid. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing that I have done is, you know, rather than just swimming straight across, I do angle a little bit upstream to try and counteract the current a little bit. And interestingly enough, what I found, you know, on this go around was that with the kick fins and with just, you know, a bit more experience and I think more confidence as well, it turns out that I really, I barely even needed to do that because I was able to pretty much cross the river, um, you know, exactly parallel to where I had started the swim 
and in the end ended up drifting downstream with the current for a couple hundred yards so I could hit that exit point that I needed to get because where you know I was going across again there were sheer cliffs and I couldn't actually get out so I needed to be further right. downstream where I landed but you know the other thing that was really big for me and I think caught me off guard on the first swim a couple of years ago and that I now knew to expect and was able to deal with better was the water temperature so you know again a couple of years ago I had a wetsuit and um you know swam across but I just remember that I had this really really strong cold water response and in retrospect that was to be anticipated because that's what our bodies do you submerge yourself in very cold water you have that cold water response and you know your breathing accelerates and everything just kind of stops functioning the way you want it to at the time I wasn't ready for that and it almost felt like I was having a panic attack or something like that in the river you know it mm -hmm. felt very very unsettling this time I knew what to expect and I'd also been preparing with uh, just some cold water immersion at home actually mm -hmm. and I was able to just embrace the cold water and kind of be ready for it be open for it and it felt a lot less threatening than it did a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Interesting yeah that was actually one of my questions was if you did any sort of cold water training uh, for this I have a, a very good friend who's a, a open water swimmer and she swims in the Puget Sound so it's cold water you know she swims in the winter and you know I've gone out with her and I'm just I that cold water response that you're talking about just like your body's just shutting down and so I can't imagine having to nail a river crossing when your body is doing that the you know the most um nerve-wracking part for me on this go around was that the day that I had my window to try this was one of the first really cold days here in the desert and there was actually a freeze warning issued by the national weather service not just for the rim level you know which is up at whatever seven thousand feet but also down for the river level at two thousand feet so it oh, was wow. getting very very cold um the day that i attempted this and i knew that my you know my second crossing when i was coming back was going to happen in the evening, um, either right before dark or right after dark. And that gave me a little pause, you know, going into that cold water and then having that cold air temperature on top of that. Right. But um, yeah, you know, it turned out okay. So I guess I got lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely want to hear a little bit more about that. But let's, let's continue. So you got out of the river on your way down and it's the middle of the day, I assume. So uh, I assume you were just like, you're wet and you're like, well, I'm just going to warm up and it's actually a nice cooling effect. What's the South Bass Trail like going up to the rim? South Bass isn't bad at all. Uh, it's still more rugged and less developed than the corridor trails, but there is an actual trail for most parts of it. And there's a couple of bushwhacky sections, but they're pretty short. It's maybe, you know, half a mile to three quarters of a mile. That's some real severe bushwhacking with, uh, with steep inclines. And the rest of it is just Kind of nice single track um way out there no water no people you know super exposed no shade so you got to be able to work with the conditions and the elements but outside of that if you know you are a hiker backpacker a trail runner who spends a lot of time out in remote areas south bass feels pretty pretty mellow and pretty approachable and i want to say it's only about oh i don't even know maybe five miles to the rim no seven and a half miles to the rim that's right it's a 15 mile round trip from the river to the rim and back Okay. And you mentioned no water. So obviously there's plenty of water at the bottom in the Colorado. How much water did you end up carrying? Was that your only water source on this? Was it the bottom? 
for this attempt, I want to say that I carried uh, two liters pretty consistently, and then I had capacity to add another liter to a liter and a half if I felt like I needed to do that. Um, I went up to the south rim, I think only with my uh, my two liters full because it was a cool day. Um, you know, the conditions really weren't bad and I was confident that I'd be able to get up and down in just a couple of hours. So yeah, on this go around, water wasn't a big concern because I could fill up at the Colorado, as you were saying, but actually also on North Bass, there were a whole bunch of water sources that are much better quality than the Colorado River. So that's mm -hmm. what I drank from primarily. But a couple of years ago, you know, we had hot temperatures when we did it and water was a huge concern and we actually ran out of water on the way to South mm -hmm. Bass and had some real issues in the heat and with dehydration coming back down to the river. This time around, it felt very, very approachable and very mellow. What was the difference in time of year between the, your first Grand Canyon Alt and this one? I believe about five days. Oh, okay. So they were both in like October. Oh, yeah. wow. So just like, I mean, Arizona and I feel like if, if, listeners aren't familiar with Arizona. Arizona is just so mercurial, like with the weather, <laughs> like yeah. um, you can have a snowstorm or um, you could be dying of the heat and these could happen days apart. And we're going to touch a little bit on the weather in the <laughs> second part of our, our discussion here. Yeah. But so I want to guess back down to the river. You said you planned to cross the river at or just before dark. Did you end up swimming the river before it got dark or were you in the water in the dark? I was in the water in the dark. I was just slow enough that, you know, I was able to get back down to the river and retrieve the gear that I had stashed. So the, you know, kick fins and everything, obviously I didn't carry up to the south rim. That would have been silly, but I was able to retrieve my gear without needing a headlamp. And then, you know, for the time that it took me to actually get ready for the swim, because I had to waterproof all of my stuff and kind of get set up with my, mm -hmm. uh, my little swim boy that I could drag across and whatnot. By the time I did that, it was dark. And uh, yeah, I went across by headlamp. Wow. Did you have any like moonlight to help you with that or just the headlamp? I did have moonlight and it was a really beautiful night, actually. I mean, as I said, it was a freeze warning, so it was cold, but I prepared for that. And um, I actually ended up swimming across in the nude because I wanted to keep my clothes dry and make sure that I had something dry to change into once I got out of the water. But yeah, I did have moon. Um, I had, you know, really nice, calm conditions. There wasn't really any wind or anything like that. The river at this point to me felt very welcoming and friendly actually. And the water almost felt warm compared to the air. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it was a really beautiful and magical experience. And, you know, when you swim back across from the South side um, in that river stretch to the North, the current kind of carries you straight to a really nice beach where you can get out and you have, you know, a bit of time to make it across. And like, it just, like the river seems to be working in your favor more on that south to north crossing than on a north to south crossing. And I already knew that from a couple of years ago. So I actually really enjoyed the swim and I ended up spending a little bit more time in the river than I absolutely needed to. Wow, that's amazing. So you cross the river, you get back to the rim, you know, you've you've completed your goal, you set the FKT. Were you happy overall with your experience? Because obviously it sounds like you came out here to, you know, maybe like prove like something to yourself. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, if you're happy with what happened, if you if you think you want to go back and do this again, like kind of what what you took away from this experience? I was really, really happy with the experience. I, you know, primarily went back to this FKT attempt because when we did it as a team a couple of years ago, that was a really good experience as well. And I love that adventure. 
And at the same time, it felt like, you know, we'd taken the edge of that river crossing a bit by doing it as a team, by having one person in a pack raft. And it just, you know, it wasn't as raw and as self-sufficient as the, you know, the usual style that I look for in most of my FKTs. And so I was always curious if I actually had it in me to go and figure this out, because, you know, I won't lie when I think about it, or at least when I used to think about the river crossing, like it felt intimidating, you know, it felt scary. It was like, well, what if, what if something goes wrong? What if I don't make it? What if, you know, I can't deal with the cold water response? What if I get swept by the current? Like what happens? Mm-hmm. And um, just being able to say, you know what, I'm committing to going back there and to going down to the river and taking a look. And if I don't feel good about it, you know, I'm not forcing myself to go across. I'm just going to go take a look. I'll see how it feels. And kind of allowing myself to embrace that uncertainty and that discomfort, that was a big win for me personally. And then actually getting down there, looking at the river and being like, you know what, actually, this is doable. This is, you know, it's entirely manageable. I feel good about this. I feel confident in my strategy. Um, that was very satisfying. And it was a beautiful day out there. So, yeah, I, I had a really good time. And I do want to go back again, not necessarily for another FKT, but you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, North Bass Trail has a couple of different variations, and there is that variation that keeps you directly in the drainage mm-hmm. rather than diverting you onto the Tonto. And that looks really, really beautiful. Um, I'd love to go and actually do that and see it, but it's slower. So, you know, it's not really an FKT appropriate type of thing. Right. So now I'd like to switch gears uh, to another iconic Arizona route um, that you recently were on, um, the Arizona Trail. So just a few weeks after this successful FKT, you set out to do an incredibly burly uh, FKT, the 800-mile Arizona Trail supported. Um, But aside from this FKT that you had done, it sounds like you hadn't done a lot of training. Um, So (laughs) I'm kind of curious, what prompted you to just like piggyback onto this Grand Canyon FKT with an 800 mile traverse of the state of Arizona. Well, you're right. So I hadn't really done much training um, really over the past year or so. And I did set out to attempt the Arizona Trail, which of course is a huge route, as you all know, given that you were the first woman to put an FKT on it in, uh, what was it, 2016, I think, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked at your trip reports extensively as I was uh, preparing for my own adventure on this. But I. I set out to run the Arizona Trail for a couple of different reasons. You know, one of them is that I live in Kanab, Utah, which is about an hour away from the northern terminus. And so the trail is right there. I have spent some of my my days as a guide and also just personal hiking projects like the Hayduke on parts of the Arizona Trail. So I've seen a little bit of it. I've always been curious about it. I would like to go and see and complete the entire trail. And in, you know, typical um, overworked and overcommitted fashion, I just don't have very much time to go and actually do um, a proper through hike with proper timing. So I was like, well, might as well try and do it fast and, you know, go for the record along the way, because why not? So some of it was just (laughs) curiosity of me wanting to see the trail. Some of it was that I really like the idea of doing things where I am not confident in the outcome. You know, I like uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I like projects where I have a real possibility of failure because it's that kind of edge that keeps me sharp and that keeps me on my toes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the third reason for why I wanted to do the Arizona Trail as an FKT was that I have some other projects coming up this coming year that require huge multi-day efforts. And as you pointed out correctly, you know, my training has been very, very lackluster. And that is because of a couple of reasons. It's because I just 
you know, it's hard for me to carve out time, but it's also because I have a terrible lack of discipline and I don't find training very interesting. <laughs> so training for me usually comes in the form of some big adventure. And the way I was looking at it was that, you know, the rim to rim to rim alt was a bit of a trial and training run for the Arizona Trail. The Arizona Trail was a bit of a training attempt for what I have coming up next year and so on and so on. So it's just one adventure building on another. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand that. Like there's a limit to how, uh, how much training you can do, at least for me without having an intermediary goal. Like I used to sign up for a lot of races in that way, you know, cause then it was like, oh, well I need a 50 mile run this week. I don't want to just go run 50 miles. Like I'll do a race, you know, and yeah, it helps keep you um, motivated. But you went southbound, which makes sense because of this time of year, because you started late, late October, or early November? Uh, late November, actually. Oh, late November. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Okay. That's pretty late. I think I started the second week of October, maybe, maybe like October 8th or 10th or something. And I remember my second day getting caught in this blinding snowstorm on the North Rim, like we were talking about earlier, you know, October in Arizona, like, you know, and it was like very hot the rest of the time I was on the trail. But mm -hmm. that day, I actually got hypothermia. And uh, you started out um, in, I think, similar conditions. Can you <laughs> tell us about your, your experience in that first, what is it like 60 miles or so to the canyon? Yes, I did start out in similar conditions. And I had to laugh because I had read your trip report, as I said, and I remembered, you know, vividly your description of getting hypothermic and trying to set up camp and how it took you forever because you just, you know, your hands weren't functioning and everything in this mm -hmm. unanticipated, you know, just spell of bad weather. Well, for me, I knew that starting in late November that I needed to try and avoid winter as much as I could, which is the reason that I started in the north, because the Kaibab is the you know, highest elevation kind of, you know, stretch for the longest miles. And I wanted to get through that before it was snowbound. Well, guess what? You know, as I was setting my dates, the 18th was um, realistically just the first day that I could get away from work and could actually make this happen. So I just, you know, couldn't start any earlier than that. And I kept watching the weather forecast and everything was looking good. And then there was some weather that was moving in exactly for the 18th and 19th. And I was like, okay, great. Well, you know, the good news was that I knew that the Kaibab hadn't seen any snow yet that season. So it was still totally dry trails and everything was okay. The roads were still open. And I just got ready to say, you know what, I'm going to have to start potentially in a blizzard and it is what it is. And, you know, I have done big endurance efforts in the Alaskan winter and whatnot. So how bad can it really be, right? I'm just going to be prepared. And, um, you know, different from how you did it, I was going for a supported FKT, right? So I had crew along and I knew that there were a whole bunch of crew access points um, throughout the Kaibab. So I was just counting on being able to trudge through the snowstorm for the first day or so and then uh, change out of my wet clothes and get into a warm van and, you know, just try and do it all over again the next day. But what actually ended up happening was that the first day was beautiful. It was really, really nice conditions. Mm. I didn't have any precip. It was just, you know, overcast, cool, like perfect running conditions. And I was moving well. I was fresh. You know, everything felt great. I actually kept like throttling my pace and slowing down because I'm like, I know that I'm not trained to go and do this stuff fast. So I need to like, you know, not run right now. I just need to hike. I need to make sure that I'm not blowing myself out. Well, I worked for the first day. And then the second day I wake up and there's about four inches of snow on the ground. And I'm now putting first tracks down. Uh, across the Kaibab oh, at 9,000 feet for about 30 miles. And that was uh, that was unpleasant. That was not fun. But, you know, it, 
you just work with what you got. Did you have anyone like pacing or accompanying you through the snow, helping you with breaking trail? I did. I had my husky Dasher. <laughs> so oh, my husband, yeah, my husband, Paul came out, um, you know, again, since we live in Kanab, it's very close and very convenient access. And he had dropped me off at the terminus to start the attempt and then um, intercepted me a couple of times on the first day and spend the night with me that first night. And so, you know, our dog was there as well. And she did, I think, eight miles with me the first day. And then the second day in the snow, she paced me for a good 18 miles. And she had a blast. Um, me, not so much, but she I'm really sure. enjoyed it. <laughs> it sounds like perfect conditions for a husky. She's like, yeah. this is great. <laughs> yep. Uh, since it was snowing, was the access road to the North Rim still open? Was your husband or crew able to, to access you there? It was still open, and I was pretty stressed out about that, actually, because I know that typically um, that road closes with the first big snow. And, mm-hmm. you know, Paul had been able to come in for my evening intercept before there really was any material snow. But then when we woke up in the morning, I was like, oh, crap, you know, now there's a bunch of snow on the ground here and what's going to happen? You know, are they actually closing the North Rim and is that going to completely um, screw up all of our crew plans for the day? But the road stayed open and, you know, he had to deal with some pretty treacherous road conditions, but he was able to make it work just fine. Yeah, that that definitely would be a scary road to be. It's very windy, like dealing because I don't think they plow it at all or anything, right? You're just... Well, they they did in that case, and I'm not entirely sure how it works. They don't plow it in the winter typically, but I guess, you know, when there is big snow um, before it's officially closed, they'll plow it for like a day or two to make sure that everybody who's in there can get out. And then eventually they close it and they don't plow it anymore. That makes sense. Yeah, you don't want people like trapped in there. And your only way out is to walk to the South Rim. Exactly. (laughs) So you managed to get, you know, all the way to Tucson, south of the Grand Canyon in two days. So that's a great start to your mm-hmm. AZT attempt. But then I think shortly thereafter, things started to deteriorate. Um, can you talk about like when you first noticed like something didn't feel right or something maybe was going wrong? Yeah. Mentally, I figured that the hardest part was going to be getting out of bed and getting moving on day three, because I knew that, you know, on day one, I was going to be fresh. I can put down a 50 mile day any day. I may be hurting the next day, but you know, I know that I can do it off the couch. The second day was going to be another 50 plus mile day through the Grand Canyon, you know, big descent, big climb back out of the canyon, get into Tusayan. Um, I had arranged with my crew to actually stay at a hotel there because I wanted to take advantage of as much um, amenities as humanly possible, you know, a hot shower, a warm bed, indoor um, infrastructure to just try and be faster in and out of the crew intercepts, right? So um, I got to Tusayan. I felt shockingly good at that point. And day three in the morning where I figured that that was going to be my kind of mental make or break, I was still feeling shockingly good. I mean, I was tired, right? But that's to be expected if you do 100 miles, 105 miles in two days without training. But I was stoked. I was feeling healthy. You know, my legs were feeling good. I didn't have any real like IT band or foot issues or anything like that that I was expecting. And I started out for another 50 mile day. And um, about halfway through that day, I had a pretty severe bonk, which, again, not entirely unexpected, doing something like this without training. I laid down, took a power nap, was able to come back from that. I put down the 50, I think, three miles that I had for that day, 52 or 53 miles, just fine. And I was still feeling good. Now, the next day is when I started feeling something a little bit off in my right like shin ankle area and you know I wasn't feeling 
totally structurally okay anymore at that point but i just mm -hmm. kind of figured you know it's it's overuse it as what it is i can hopefully probably manage it and little did i know that that was the beginning of the end already on day four you know the pain that i felt on day four ended up getting worse and worse and worse until i finally dropped out at mile 309. so i mean you you went four days without before you started having kind of like some issues what was your original goal like how long were you intending to be out there what was your your fkt goal I wanted to try and do this in just under 16 days. So my plan was to do to average 50 miles a day. And, you know, I know from uh, reading year trip reports and talking to other folks that the northern part of the trail is a lot faster and a lot easier than the southern part of the trail. So my strategy the whole time was that I wanted to start out with the quote unquote easy miles in the north. I wanted to, you know, try and move through that and get stronger while I'm in the north and I was going to try and get stronger by making sure that I got rest every night that you know I was fueling really well I was hydrating really well and by avoiding overuse injuries of course you know I had a couple of overuse injuries on my mental shortlist that I was expecting and kind of had I think some sort of plan in place to deal with you know I I have issues with Martin's neuroma, which is this, you know, really bad chronic foot pain. And I was expecting issues with that. I have had issues with my IT bands in the past. I've had issues with my left ankle in the past. Like I was, I was ready for all of those things. The pain that I started to feel on day three was in my right shin and ankle, and it was completely new to me and unexpected. And um, mm. yeah, anyway, I, I ended up not managing that well and it deteriorated and it's what made me eventually drop up. But you carried on doing your miles for three more days before you finally made the decision to quit? Yeah, so I did my plan 52 miles on day three. Day four, I shortened to mm -hmm. do only about 33 miles because I figured, you know, I want to get ahead of this. I want to get a good night's rest. I want to sleep. I want to do all the things. And as I said, I tried to get stronger early on so that I can then really push on the back end. And that you know, that seemed to work so-so. And then um, I did another, I think, close to 50 mile day the next day and was suffering pretty badly at this point. And then mm -hmm. the next day, um, which would have been day five now, this was Thanksgiving day, actually, is that right? So that was a Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, on the sixth day, I got out of bed in the morning at camp and I got on the trail and um, was debating what to do because I was in a lot of pain at this point. And initially I was just going to take another quote unquote half day, you know, 30 miles. And my husband suggested that I should just take a complete rest day and a zero day to try and um, nurse the injury and you know figure out what was going on and try to get ahead of it and so I did that and uh, got back on the trail on day seven for a 57 mile day I think which worked out pretty well for the first 50 miles and then in the final seven miles things just went to pieces and mm -hmm. um, it deteriorated from there but yeah I kept going until Saturday midday. So that would have been, you know, seven and a half days on trail before I finally pulled the plug. So I had kind of a similar experience uh, when I attempted the Colorado Trail several years ago. And I mean, I think I quit the attempt on like day four, um, but I still had to hike out. But I think I knew on day two that it was all over because I also had an yeah. injury that I, you know, thought was a stress fracture. It turned out not to be. But so the the two or three days that I continued on, like trying to mitigate the issue, I know retrospectively were just me mentally struggling with the decision to quit. So I'm kind of curious, like, 
what this experience was like for you? Like, did you really think you were going to get ahead of it, do you think? Or do you think that it, it just took you three or more days to kind of mentally work through like giving up on this effort? Because I know that's what ended up happening to me. So I'm kind of curious what your experience was with this. That's a great question. Uh, to be honest, I think that Friday and Saturday, you know, those final two days, a day and a half on the trail, I knew it wasn't going to happen. And, you know, at that point I was pushing onwards for multiple reasons. One, because I felt like, I guess maybe I wasn't just in enough pain yet to justify dropping out, but also um, because, you know, my crew was there and there's folks who'd flown in to support me and, you know, everybody was excited and stoked and I didn't want to let them down and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of those things. And I also felt like I still had time because, The interesting thing is that at that point, you know, I wasn't moving great, but I was still making my daily mileage goals. And I was like, well, you know, if I can just hobble at two and a half miles an hour, you know, that means that I will be absolutely, utterly sleep deprived. And it's just going to be a complete mess in the last days, but I might still have a shot of actually doing this. So anyway, but that was the last two days. Um, Before that, I think, you know, on day three, four, five, six, the rest day, I actually... I did think that I might be able to get ahead of it. And Mm -hmm. the reason that I say that is because um, the current supported record holder, Helen, she was dealing with an injury as well when she did her um, attempt. And she was able to miraculously come back from that injury after about seven days. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. know how, I don't think she knows how, but you know, she was able to push through it, just walk it off and eventually she was fine. So that gave me a little bit of hope. Um, the other thing that gave me hope is that, again, I've done some, you know, big multi-day efforts in the past, and I've had injuries, um, particularly um, during the Iditarod Trail Invitational in Alaska, where, you know, on day two or three, I just, you know, it seemed completely impossible for me to continue on. Mm-hmm. And I rested up, and I pushed through it, and it was fine, right? So I've seen how things can kind of sort themselves out over the long term, and with the overuse injuries that I've had in the past, you know, with the IT band issues, with Morton's neuroma, with, you know, my left ankle, with the appropriate support, I have frequently been able to kind of reel things in and make it manageable and sustainable. Yeah, this one was different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I certainly have noticed this in myself. And I I think I've talked to some other people who've done big multi-day efforts who have uh, experienced similar things. It's like, your body just kind of develops this like, seemingly miraculous ability to heal and recover from things like you know I know like when I was doing the PCT in 2013 like I pulled my hamstring like I felt a pop you know and I mean I have done that not on the trail and it takes you know weeks to heal and it I hobbled along for like three days and then it was fine like the body just like is capable of these like miraculous like recoveries when you're doing these big efforts and so definitely not completely unfounded to try to keep pushing through for a while. I'm curious if this was your first time stopping a really big effort like this, like something you were like very all in at, or, or have you done this before? Have you gone through this before? You know, when I dropped, my husband made a comment. He was like, well, you haven't really dropped out of anything, you know, Mm -hmm. recently. And I'm like, I don't think that that's right. I've dropped out of plenty of things. I've definitely had a lot of DNFs. Um, I have DNF'd a lot of races. I have had FKT attempts that I started and turned around on. I don't think I've ever had anything of this magnitude. You know, it was supposed to be a 16-day effort, and I ended up quitting after, what, eight days, right, 50% in, and not even 50% of the mile. So 
So no, nothing of this magnitude. But, you know, I do remember, for example, a couple of years ago, I, um, I attempted to run the Pfiffner Traverse, which is a 76 mile route in Colorado. That's super beautiful. And uh, that took me two attempts to get done. You know, I dropped out the first time. Um, Aconcagua, big mountain in the Andes in Argentina is kind of the uh, the mountain that I quote unquote made my mark on, I guess, early on that kind of kicked off my trajectory a little bit as an athlete. And I had lots of failures on that. Um, I've turned around on lots of mountains. I've dropped out of lots of races. So yes, I've had lots and lots of um, stories of people would traditionally call failures. Um, right. I don't really think about them as failures. I think about them as aborted attempts. Um, right. But but yeah, nothing quite of this magnitude. I mean, I've never tried to set an 800 mile speed record before. So there's that. Yeah. Was there a, a difference like in like the mentality or the, the thought process that went into pulling the plug on the AZT versus some of these other like shorter efforts that you've, you've stopped or did, did it just when you knew you knew and it was fine, you were fine to walk away. Like was there, cause for me on the Colorado trail, that was my first time quitting anything, like never quit a race or anything. And I mean, there was a whole grieving process that happened afterward. Cause I was like very invested in this, you know, big thing. And like, it was easy enough to quit, I guess. But then like the aftermath of that was actually really challenging. I feel like I've been remarkably okay with it. I know exactly what you're talking about because I've gone through that process many, many times on many different things on mostly smaller attempts with the AZT, you know, interestingly enough, so it's been a week now since I dropped out, you know, I just um, dropped Saturday, yesterday, a week ago. And my dog, my husky Dasher has been moping in a corner pretty much for the whole week. And I think, <laughs> you know, maybe either she's just, you know, assuming all of the grief and all of the things that I should be feeling, but I don't know, maybe I'm not allowing myself to feel or I'm just, you know, not not as acutely impacted by it this time. But I think what made a big difference for me is that I knew from the very beginning, trying to do 800 miles with no training, I mean, that's, it's pretty ludicrous. And I knew that my odds of being successful were slim. Um, I had reasons for why I thought it was a good idea to attempt it, even with my lack of training. But I also knew that there was absolutely no guarantees. And, mm -hmm. you know, in general, I I was really keen on the adventure side of it. And I was really keen on um, the training effect and the experience and the learnings from it as well. Looking forward to, you know, some future big multi-day efforts. But the record in and of itself was very much secondary. And so mm -hmm. I, yeah, I certainly would much rather still be out there right now and be clawing my way towards the Mexico border, you know, which if things had gone to plan, I should be finishing sometime between today, tomorrow or the next day in order to get the record. But mm -hmm. the fact that I wasn't able to do that, it's not a huge shocker to me. And um, I think I had embraced the possibility of me not being able to complete this before I even started it. So I'd love to hear maybe just as a kind of wrap up, like, what your biggest takeaway was from the AZT or maybe just the Grand Canyon attempt or maybe just the two of them together, the juxtaposition of, you know, this successful empowering effort and then like a step back and like a learning experience on the AZT. I think the biggest lesson that I've had from the AZT specifically is that I feel like I found my physical limits on this one. 
you know, in general, I always feel like even if I am not well trained, even if I don't have, you know, the foundational mileage, I can go and hammer out a, you know, long to very long effort for a day or two or three and be just fine. But I think the AZT kind of said, okay, you know what, enough. Um, no, you cannot do 800 miles off the couch in 16 days. That is just, you know, your body's not ready for that. So that was a good learning for me because in the past, I feel like I've almost been able to get away with murder and do a lot of things very, very unprepared. And in some ways, that's it's not helpful for athletic longevity or, you know, general, like, well-balanced adventures. Um, mm-hmm. right. But, you know, outside of that, the both the experience on the Arizona Trail and the experience in the Grand Canyon are driving home to me what, you know, I feel like I've been living and breathing for the last couple of years, which is that in the end, it's it's not about the records to me. You know, the records are, they're cool and, you know, they're noteworthy and they're an excuse for other people to care. But what it's all about is the adventure and the journey and the decisions and the strategy behind any record. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the Arizona Trail, there ended up not being a record, but I'm actually incredibly excited now because I've seen parts of it and I've seen my own limitations and I've seen what all goes into trying to set a huge FKT like that. And by the way, I can't even imagine. I mean, my mind is blown now, you know, by the thought of you doing this unsupported because <laughs> initially, before I even looked into it, I was like, oh, you know, I'll do the Arizona Trail. I'll go for it unsupported. And then folks started, you know, raising their hand and it kind of turned into a supported effort. And now that I've been there and done that, I'm like, there is no way I could do this unsupported. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> but, Very you know, point being, I'm just, it's so much harder. But uh, I'm just excited to go back out there and try again and, you know, try again with more experience, more preparation and just being a little bit smarter and wiser and respecting my body more. I think that's like a a beautiful summary and a great, a great takeaway, Um, not just for your efforts, but just of FKTs in general and like why we do these big adventures in the outdoors. So uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing all of this with us. Thank you, Heather. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks again, Sunny, for coming on the show. You can read about her FKT on the website, fastestknowintime.com, and follow her adventures on Instagram at S-S-T-R-O-E-E-R. I also want to give a special thank you to John G for supporting the FKT podcast. John G makes trail running essentials designed to go further, perfect for your next FKT. And beyond making super durable trail running apparel that's backed by a five-year run everywhere guarantee, they also donate 2% of sales to clean water programs in the places we run. So far, John G has donated $1 million to clean water and counting. Take advantage of a 10% off coupon at johng.com with code FKT. 